Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. Now, before we jump in here, we want to give you an extra content warning because this episode contains descriptions of violence and harm inflicted upon medically fragile infants, which may be distressing for some listeners. In the world of true crime, few narratives are as chilling as those that explore the dark underbelly of innocence, where the vulnerable fates of children are placed in the hands of caregivers entrusted with their care. Lucy Letby, a neonatal nurse known for her dedication to the well-being of medically fragile premature newborns, seemed to possess that special calling. But behind the facade of compassion, a sinister motive took hold, unraveling the very fabric of trust and shattering the lives in its wake. What drives an individual to harm the very beings they are meant to protect? As we delve into the depths of the Lucy Letby case, we uncover the disturbing psychological need that may have compelled her to manipulate and inflict harm on the innocent, leaving us questioning the very nature of evil that can lurk in the hearts of those we least suspect. This is a chilling tale that confronts us with the uncomfortable truths about the fragility of trust and the devastating consequences when caregivers betray their sacred duty to nurture and safeguard the lives placed in their care. Between March of 2015 and July 2016, at the Countess of Chester Hospital in England, the neonatal intensive care unit had an abnormally high number of baby deaths and near deaths. Too many for it to be a coincidence. And each time one of these events occurred, there was a young nurse involved by the name of Lucy Letby. At first, the hospital chose to ignore the fact that she was what some called the common denominator. At first, she was moved to another unit where she couldn't harm any more infants. After a lengthy investigation from the hospital and then law enforcement, she was arrested in 2018 on suspicion of eight counts of suspected murder and six counts of suspected attempted murder. She was released on bail pending further investigation. Eventually, she was arrested a second time in 2019 for eight alleged counts of murder and nine counts of attempted murder. Again, she was given bail pending further investigation. She was arrested a third and final time in November of 2020, this time charged with eight counts of murder and 10 counts of attempted murder. That was eventually reduced to seven counts of murder and 10 counts of attempted murder. And this time, she stayed in jail pending her trial, which began in October of 2022. 
is anticipated to last six months and conclude in July of 2023. Now, just to note, high-profile cases in England differ greatly from those in the United States. Here, we sometimes livestream our high-profile criminal trials. Well, in England, media coverage is handled differently. While coverage of high-profile trials can be intense in both countries, there are significant differences and limitations. For instance, in England, there are stricter regulations on reporting, particularly to ensure the fairness of proceedings and to protect the rights of the accused and the victims. The Contempt of Court Act restricts the reporting of certain details after the trial, aiming to prevent pre-trial prejudice. However, there are journalists who are live-tweeting the trial and even several journalists who have released daily trial updates via a podcast. We have amassed our information from all published and reliable sources with the highest journalistic ethics and fact-checking records. At the release of this episode, there will not be a verdict, but we do know quite a bit about each of the victims as well as the facts leading up to Lucy's three arrests. So in July of 2016, the neonatal unit at Countess of Chester Hospital was forced to stop accepting premature infants before the gestational age of 32 weeks. And the reason being was the unexplained high mortality rate of infants in the preceding 12 months. Instead, those infants were now being diverted to other area hospitals. There was an investigative report that showed the death rate among premature infants in the last 12 months was remarkably higher than other similarly rated special care units. In May 2017, the Foundation Trust for Countess of Chester Hospital invited the Cheshire Police Department to assist with the ongoing review, stating this was to, quote, seek assurances that enable us to rule out unnatural causes of death. Lucy, who was 27 years old at the time the investigation began, was born in January of 1990. She graduated with a nursing degree from the University of Chester in 2011. Following her graduation, she worked in the neonatal unit at the Countess Hospital from 2011 to 2016. She had also worked on the unit as a student nurse during her three years of training. Lucy had several articles written about her beginning in 2012, where she appeared smiling, holding a freshly swaddled infant. In 2013, The Pretty Blonde was part of a campaign to raise three million pounds in three years to create a new neonatal unit for the hospital. In an interview at the time, she stated that her role involved, quote, Caring for a wide range of babies requiring various levels of support. I enjoy seeing the progress and supporting their families. I hope that the new unit will provide a greater degree of privacy and space for parents and siblings. And after her arrest, her home was searched, where police found several pieces of incriminating evidence, including some of the medical notes of the babies she was accused of murdering. But of particular interest in widespread reporting was a post-it note found in her home on which she wrote disturbing comments. One of them read, quote, There are no words. I am an awful person. I pay every day for that. No hope. I can't breathe. I can't focus. I'll never have children or marry. I'll never know what it's like to have a family. 
kill myself right now. Overwhelming fear. I haven't done anything wrong. Police investigation. Forget. Slander. Discrimination. Victimization. Despair. Panic. Fear. Loss. Hate. Hate myself so much. All getting too much. Everything taking over my life. I feel very alone and scared. What does the future hold? How will things ever be like they were? They won't. I don't deserve to live. I did this. Why me? I killed them on purpose because I'm not good enough to care for them and I am a horrible and evil person. I don't deserve mom and dad. The world is better off without me. I am evil. I did this. End quote. Now, on another note, she wrote, quote, Why slash how did this happen? What process has led to this current situation? What allegations have been made and by whom? Do they have written evidence to support their comments? I haven't done anything wrong and they have no evidence, so why have I had to hide away? The prosecutor, Nick Johnson, said that Lucy was a constant malevolent presence in the hospital's neonatal unit. He alleged that Lucy had injected air into the bloodstream of two of the alleged victims and used insulin to murder two others. A mother of one of the alleged victims said that she walked in on Lucy trying to kill her baby. Lucy suggested the mother leave and stated, quote, trust me, I'm a nurse, you can trust me. He told the court that Lucy took a perverse pleasure in watching the pain on the parents' faces. And she was often told more than once not to go into a room where the parents of the babies she was accused of murdering were grieving and spending their last moments with their infants. It was alleged that Lucy's motives for harming the babies could be rooted in a deep-seated jealousy and fear of not being able to have children of her own. Seeing the joy and happiness of the parents with their healthy infants may have triggered feelings of resentment and inadequacy within her. This jealousy might have driven her to take perverse pleasure in upsetting the parents, relishing in the depths of their despair and grief over their sick children. It also came out in the trial that Lucy had a flirtation with one of the doctors in the neonatal unit. Ironically, he would later become one of the doctors who suspected her of murder. It was speculated that her developing crush further fueled her motivations to harm some of her victims. Her desire for attention and validation from this doctor may have led her to exploit the infants requiring medical care as an opportunity to interact with this doctor possibly hoping that her involvement in the care of the babies would further capture his attention and interest. During her trial, that same doctor testified against her. When his name was announced, Lucy got very upset and tried to leave the courtroom. After a discussion with her attorney, she sat back down and tried to remain stoic and hide her tears throughout his testimony. Now, previously in the trial, their flirty text exchanges were read in the court record. Their attraction appeared to be mutual, and when suspicion first fell on Lucy, he was quick to reassure her that she was a great nurse and had done nothing wrong. Obviously, his opinion changed after her three arrests in multiple charges for murder and attempted murder. It was even speculated that when he was first transferred to a different part of the hospital, Lucy created emergency situations with the infants in her care as an excuse to summon him to the neonatal unit and spend time with him. Many of her charges included several murder attempts on the same infants. Of course, the defense explained away the charges against his client as a cover-up for an understaffed and untrained unit. 
He stated Lucy was a dedicated nurse in a system that had failed her and failed the victims. He claimed the prosecutor was driven by the, quote, assumptions that someone was doing deliberate harm combined with the coincidence on certain occasions of Miss Letby's presence. There has been a massive failure of care in a busy hospital neonatal unit, far too great to blame on one person. Now, for legal purposes, none of the babies have been publicly named, nor have their parents. During the trial, the victims are referred to by their legal names. However, journalists in the UK are prohibited from naming them publicly. So, in most reports, they have referred to them as child or baby A through Q. We have gathered our information and trial testimony from a combination of live trial tweets and articles written by the BBC, The Daily Mail, Mail Plus, The Guardian, ITV.com, and People Magazine. We're going to start with Baby A. Baby A was a baby boy allegedly murdered at one day of age on June 8, 2015. He was a twin and had been born just one minute after his twin sister. He was born prematurely, nine weeks early, and delivered by cesarean section at 31 weeks of age. He and his twin sister were delivered early because his mother was suffering from dangerously high blood pressure. This was considered a high-risk pregnancy because the mother had previously suffered a stroke. They both weighed right under four pounds at birth and were thought to be doing well. But then almost immediately following birth, baby A began grunting, which is a sign that a baby is struggling to breathe. When he arrived at the neonatal unit of the hospital, he was in good condition and doing well. He was considered stable. The following morning after his birth, he was breathing air without oxygen and was given expressed breast milk, which according to his medical records, he tolerated well. Now, Lucy began her shift around 7.30 p.m., where there was a 30-minute handover from the nurse who had looked after him during the day shift. And by 8 o'clock p.m., Lucy became the designated nurse for baby A. 26 minutes later, she called for a doctor to the baby's incubator. An on-call consultant was also alerted. In this context, an on-call consultant refers to a specialized medical professional who is responsible for providing out-of-hours emergency care and guidance. Neonatal units are specialized departments within hospitals that focus on the care of newborn infants, particularly those who are premature, critically ill, or require specialized medical attention. During regular working hours, a neonatal unit in England is typically staffed by a team of healthcare professionals, including consultants, doctors, nurses, and other specialized staff. However, outside of regular working hours, such as evenings, weekends, and holidays, an on-call consultant is designated to provide immediate medical expertise and decision-making for any urgent or emergency cases that arise. They are typically experienced and highly skilled neonatologists or pediatricians who have expertise in managing and treating complex medical conditions in preemies and newborns. They may also be responsible for coordinating any necessary interventions, diagnostic tests, or procedures required to stabilize or treat the patient. It's considered a crucial role in treating critically ill or unstable infants. 
In the United States, we would call them the attending physician or on-call attending. They oversee the care provided by resident physicians and other medical professionals within a specific medical specialty or department. In the context of a neonatal unit in the United States, the attending physician is usually a senior level physician. So having both a physician and an on-call consultant would be crucial to ABA's survival. In England, they also use the term called collapse. We will use this term a lot throughout this episode. A collapse in the United States would be similar to the term we use, which is crashing. Both terms are often used to describe a sudden and severe deterioration in a patient's condition. It implies a rapid and significant decline in vital signs, organ function, or overall health. There can also be different types of crashes. For instance, we could have a cardiac crash or a respiratory crash. For this episode, we will be using the English term collapse. With these definitions in mind, baby A collapsed and died within 90 minutes of Lucy's shift. Prior to her shift, he was stable and doing well. Medical experts noticed he had an odd discoloration and patches of pink and blue all over his skin. This would later become a hallmark or sign of the babies that the prosecution alleged Lucy killed. They believed this was a result of her pushing a deliberate injection of air into baby A's circulation system minutes before his collapse. A medical expert on autopsy would later state that this was not a natural event and most likely air was deliberately administered by someone who knew it would cause significant harm and even death. A pathologist concluded that the administration was done through one of the two tubes already attached to baby A's body. This would take mere seconds to accomplish and could look like routine care if observed by someone else. The defense, of course, denies that his death was the result of an air embolism or air bubble. When Lucy was cross-examined, she stated that baby A looked, quote, jittery when she arrived for her shift and his limbs were twitching. She said he didn't look well, and within minutes of her arrival, his alarms began going off. She denies doing anything to intentionally harm him. The next day, the prosecution alleged she tried to kill his twin sister the following night. His twin sister, Baby B, required resuscitation efforts immediately following birth, but she quickly recovered and stabilized. Now, shortly before midnight on June 9, 2015, her blood and oxygen levels had fallen and her nasal oxygen prongs had become dislodged. And by 12.30 a.m., her alarm went off and she presented as blue, limp, and not breathing. Once the specialists arrived, they were able to quickly get her breathing again. The medical expert who reviewed Baby B's file stated that her collapse resulted from some form of sabotage. He also believed she could even have been injected with a dose of air like her brother. He said these were two healthy twins born premature but in stable condition. No one expected either of them to die or nearly die. Now currently, Baby B is 8 years old and doesn't appear to have any long-term medical consequences from what the prosecutors are calling attempted murder. The defense believes that this is a case of confirmation bias, where the prosecution has influenced the medical experts with a theory of harm. 
On cross-examination, Lucy denies harming baby B or causing her to stop breathing, but she did take credit for sounding the alarm and giving proper care resulting in baby B's survival. Baby C was a little boy who died at five days old on June 14, 2015. Again, like baby A, he had a mottled and discolored abdomen covered in blue and pink patches. Later, medical experts attributed this to a pulmonary embolism. The night he collapsed, he was supposed to be watched by another nurse. But Lucy agreed to watch him for a few minutes, and during that short window of time with Lucy, he crashed. The medical examiner determined that his breathing was compromised and resulted in cardiac arrest. Within hours of his death, Lucy began searching for his parents on Facebook. The defense said that baby C was a medically fragile, very premature baby born 10 weeks early and weighing only 1.8 pounds at birth. The defense asserted that with his fragile medical condition, he should have immediately been transferred to a nearby specialist at a children's hospital where they can care for babies who are highly prone to infection. The next baby is baby D. She was a little girl who was allegedly murdered by Lucy on June 22, 2015. They believe that Lucy intentionally injected an air bubble into her bloodstream. Baby D was thought to have an infection because her mother's water broke earlier before they decided to deliver her via a cesarean section. Once she was taken to the neonatal ICU, she responded well to treatment and was considered stable. All of that changed when Lucy arrived on a shift. Baby D collapsed three times under Lucy's care. During the second collapse, she was described as distressed and crying. The alarm went off a third time and doctors were unable to revive her. After her shift was over, Lucy exchanged text messages with a coworker in which she explained all of the recent deaths were difficult, but clearly the result of natural causes. During cross-examination, Lucy was unable to explain why, once again, within hours of Baby D's death, she began searching for the parents on Facebook. In one message with her friends, she described Baby D's death as an element of fate. The prosecutor told the jury, quote, We say, tragically for child D, her bad luck or fate was the fact that Lucy Letby was working in the neonatal unit that night, unquote. The defense alleged that it was more likely that Baby D died from an undiagnosed infection and should have been placed on antibiotics. They told the jury there was more evidence to suggest infection was the cause of death rather than an air bubble allegedly administered by Lucy into Baby D's IV. Baby E was a little boy who was murdered on August 4, 2015 by an injection of air into his bloodstream. On the night of his death, he was visited by his mother in the neonatal unit. The prosecutor believed his mother interrupted Lucy attacking her baby, but didn't realize it at the time. His mother noticed that he was in distress, he was crying and bleeding. Lucy told her the blood was normal and probably from a scratch in his throat from the feeding tube, and she should go and rest. When the mother wanted to stay with their son, Lucy told her that she would have one of the consultants look at him and let her know if there was any cause for concern. Then she again urged her to go back to her room and get some rest. When the mother hesitated, Lucy said, quote, Trust me, I'm a nurse. I know what I'm doing. A few hours later, he suffered a significant blood loss. 
The treating physician would later say he had never encountered such a large bleed in a small baby. The prosecutor alleged after his death, Lucy wrote fraudulent medical notes with false and misleading information designed to cover her tracks. The prosecution told the jury that after baby E's death, Lucy showed a very unusual interest in his parents. She conducted several searches on his parents' social media accounts and even checked their Facebook again several months later on Christmas Day. The prosecution believed Lucy took perverse pleasure from watching them suffer the loss of their babies due to her own jealousy and envy. Once again, the defense alleged that the prosecutor was trying to blame the most natural of deaths on Lucy, even when the facts didn't fit the allegations. Baby F was also a little boy, and he was the twin brother of Baby E. The day after allegedly murdering Baby E, Lucy used insulin for the first time. Her alleged plan was to poison two of his feeding bags so he would die at a time when she wasn't present and couldn't be blamed. Blood tests on insulin levels were carried out which showed conclusive evidence. Someone had tried to poison him with insulin. No other baby on the floor was prescribed insulin at the time, so it couldn't have been given to him as human error. The prosecution stated they knew who was in the room at the time the nutrition bags were prepared, and it couldn't have been an accident. The only credible candidate for the poisoner was determined to be Lucy. When Lucy was cross-examined on baby F's death, she agreed that he had been intentionally poisoned with synthetic insulin based on the medical findings. However, she denied being the person who intentionally poisoned him. She also didn't rule out that it could have been accidental by another nurse. The defense stated that there was nothing in fact to conclude that Lucy took any of these actions claimed by the prosecution. Baby G was a little girl who survived. It is alleged that Lucy tried to murder her on three separate occasions, once on September 7th, 2015, and twice on September 21st, 2015. Baby G was born exceptionally premature at a different hospital before being transferred to Countess of Chester's neonatal unit. She was born four months early and weighed just 1.2 pounds. In mid-August, she was transferred to Countess and doing well. She was even considered stable. She was set to celebrate her 100 days of life the day before the first attempt on her life. Lucy and some of the other nurses put up banners and made a cake to mark the milestone date. But in the early morning hours, the prosecution claimed that Lucy intentionally fed her an excessive amount of milk through her nasogastric tube. She also could have injected her with an air bubble. Despite Baby G's small size, this overfeeding caused her to spray vomit outside of her cradle onto a nearby chair and onto the floor. After vomiting, she suffered a collapse and was not breathing. Everyone in the hospital was surprised because she was doing so well. She was immediately transferred back to her birth hospital for specialized care. She returned to Countess of Chester Hospital on September 16, 2015. On the 21st, during the morning shift, she vomited again after allegedly being overfed by Lucy. This overfeeding prevented her lungs from expanding and she stopped breathing after vomiting twice. She was connected to a monitor that measures oxygen saturation and heart rate levels after this event. In the mid-afternoon, Lucy noticed the monitor had mysteriously been shut off and that baby G was struggling to breathe. 
Lucy began giving her bagged ventilation and the baby began breaching again. As a result of the first two episodes, baby G became severely disabled. She is currently eight years old with severe defects and an unknown lifespan. Prosecutors believe Lucy intentionally and permanently injured this child and was charged with attempted murder. On cross-examination, Lucy denied these allegations. And on the day of the last two attempts on baby G's life, Lucy looked up her parents' Facebook and other social media accounts. Predictably, the defense alleged that baby G was an extremely premature baby and was already at high risk of cerebral palsy and other debilitating defects. They denied that Lucy had anything to do with baby G's ongoing medical issues. Baby H is a little girl whom the prosecution claimed Lucy tried to murder on two separate occasions, once on September 26th and a second time on September 27th, 2015. Baby H collapsed twice, both on night shifts when Lucy was her primary caregiver. On both occasions, she required chest compressions and the administration of synthetic adrenaline. She showed dramatic improvement as soon as she was transferred to a different hospital away from Lucy's care. The charging documents noticed that often children showed a remarkable improvement once they were transferred out of the Countess of Chester Hospital and away from Lucy's care. The defense alleged that this was proof that there were staffing and training deficiencies at Countess Hospital resulting in the children receiving suboptimal care. They alleged that baby H's medical emergencies had a positive outcome because of Lucy's care. Baby I was a little girl who was allegedly murdered on October 23, 2015. It's alleged that Lucy made four separate attempts on her life until finally proved successful. It is alleged that Lucy injected air into baby I's nasal gastric tube just days after her last attempt on baby H. In the second alleged incident, a coworker testified against Lucy as an eyewitness. She stated that Lucy stood in the doorway of a darkened room in the neonatal unit when Lucy remarked the baby looked pale and needed help. The other problem was the cradle was covered and you couldn't see the baby inside. There was no way for Lucy to actually know if the child was in great distress and had stopped breathing. The baby required extensive chest compressions and shots of adrenaline before she was successfully resuscitated. Less than an hour later, her alarm went off again. When the nurse arrived, she noticed that the child again was struggling and Lucy was doing nothing, just standing over her incubator. The nurse wanted to intervene, but Lucy instructed her to let the baby sort it out herself. The nurse called for help anyway, and by the time the doctor arrived, the baby wasn't breathing again they were unable to revive her. The expert pediatrician who reviewed baby I's medical records concluded that the baby's deteriorations were consistent with the deliberate administration of large amounts of air into her stomach. This causes the stomach to bloat and prevents the lungs from expanding and taking in air. The final time, the medical examiner alleged that someone injected air into her bloodstream, which is what led her to screaming. Usually, babies in the neonatal unit don't scream. Lucy wrote the parents a sympathy card and kept a photo of the card on her phone. She also looked up the parents on Facebook and other forms of social media. The defense alleged that Lucy never harmed baby I. Instead, her quote, collapses and ultimately death were part of a series of clinical problems which may well have been inevitable given her extreme prematurity. 
Baby J was a little girl who the prosecution believed Lucy attempted to murder on November 27, 2015. She was born at 32 weeks gestation on October 31, 2015. It was discovered she was born with a perforated bowel at Alder Hay Children's Hospital in Liverpool. She came back to the Countess of Chester Hospital on November 10, 2015. Her medical records showed that she was doing well and was medically stable. Before her shift started, Lucy complained to a work colleague that she was transferred to the part of the neonatal unit where all the babies were healthy and only needed to be fed. She found it insulting and boring that she wasn't allowed to care for the more medically fragile babies. The charge nurse believed she needed a break after dealing with so many babies who had died, but Lucy believed the opposite. The quickest way to recover from death was to take care of the most severe cases to get her mind off of it. Despite only needing to feed the medically stable babies, Baby J suffered an unexplained collapse which caused her to be moved to the high dependency room or the HDR section. At 6.56 a.m., Baby J's oxygen level dropped so low it was unrecordable and she began having seizures. 20 minutes later, Lucy gave the baby a glucose infusion. Then, within minutes, the baby collapsed again with a seizure. A doctor had to resuscitate the infant, but he could not explain why it kept happening. At this point in time, Lucy had come under suspicion by two of the other doctors. They both went to the administration and the consultants and asked that Lucy be removed from the neonatal unit. This request was categorically denied. As a result, Dr. Jayaram was on high alert. When he learned from another nurse that Lucy was alone in the unit, he had a strong urge to check on her and make sure that she wasn't harming another infant. That child was Baby K. Baby K was a little girl who the prosecution alleged Lucy tried to murder on February 17, 2016. Born prematurely at only 25 weeks gestation, Baby K was considered to be in relatively good condition, considering her early arrival. Due to her specialized medical needs, it was decided to transfer her to a different hospital that was equipped to handle higher-risk infants. However, concern arose when Dr. J. Ram discovered that Lucy was alone with the baby just 90 minutes after she had been checked into the neonatal unit. Given Lucy's involvement in multiple serious incidents and unexplained deaths, Dr. Jayram felt uneasy about the situation, as Lucy seemed to be a common factor in these distressing events. He rushed to the unit and saw Lucy standing over Baby K's incubator as her oxygen saturation level was falling dangerously low. Lucy was merely observing rather than intervening as if nothing were wrong. Dr. Jayaram noticed the baby's chest was no longer moving and asked Lucy what was happening. That's when Lucy replied, quote, she just started deteriorating now. The doctor found that baby K's breathing tube had been dislodged, which can happen in an active baby, but baby K had been sedated and was inactive. Dr. Jayaram was able to fix the breathing tube and baby K stabilized. Later that same morning, Lucy was again at Baby K's side when she placed a call for help. This time, she alleged that Baby K had stopped breathing because the tube had slipped too far into her throat. Baby K was transferred to another hospital, and two days later, her parents chose to remove her from care. 
she died peacefully in her father's arms. As a result, Lucy is only being charged with two counts of attempted murder. Now, if this case has infuriated you, you are not alone. I am with you. We have decided to make this a two-parter because there's just so much more to this case. So we're wrapping things up for part one. It's completely sickening that this went on and on, child after child. I mean, at what point will someone intervene? Next week, we will deliver part two, where we will discuss babies L through Q, and we'll follow up with Lucy's testimony in her own defense. The trial is still ongoing with a verdict expected in July. Make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening so you get a notification as soon as it's available. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.